Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. Today's episode is fantastic with Kelsey Smith. She is a master's prepared registered dietitian with undergraduate degrees in psychology and nutrition. I can't think of a better pair of psychology and nutrition because so much uh, psychology and mindset is behind the foods we eat, how our behaviors are around eating. So I think that's just the coolest combination. Kelsey is also a former gymnast and a D1 track and cross country athlete. And in this episode, we really talk about how to fuel your body for performance, how to work out harder and more effectively and smarter and how to recover better. So this episode is not about what foods to avoid, what diet trend to follow. It's about food is medicine and food is nourishment and fuel. So if you guys are wanting to perform your best, whether you are like Kelsey and a D1 athlete, or maybe you just like to move your body well and effectively, we consider everybody with a body to be an athlete. So we all have something to learn from this awesome episode with Kelsey Smith. Kelsey, I am so excited to have you on the Little By podcast all the way from Colorado. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on here with you. Um, you're doing amazing things with this podcast. So really excited to be a guest. Thank you so much. And we were talking before we started recording that when we're recording this, it's April right now. And Kelsey was telling me that it's still snowing in Colorado. <laughs> yes, it's a little bit hard for this Atlanta girl to get used to. But like we were talking about, there's such an outdoor culture here, so it makes it a lot more fun whenever people rally and we're involved in a lot of those outdoor activities. Yeah, I feel like I love seeing snow for like two days. I think it's beautiful. And then I'm like, can you go away? <laughs> I don't exactly. want any more snow. Exactly. Um, I'm already so cold. Even in like a Georgia summer, I'm like a snake. Uh, but I wanted to first get into your background a little bit um, and then kind of hear about what made you become a dietitian. So tell us about you, Kelsey. Yeah. So I feel like I was kind of destined to be a dietitian primarily for two reasons. Um, the first is that I've always loved cooking. I got my first cookbook when I was like five or six years old. So super young. I remember I had a Barnes and Noble gift card and my parents took me and I actually got to pick out whatever book I wanted. And I picked up the Williams and Sonoma kids cookbook. Um, I still have this book and it is one of my dearest possessions. So that's kind of first, I've always had a love for cooking. And then I was an athlete growing up. You know, I grew up playing a ton of sports. I was a competitive gymnast for about eight years and then turned to cross country and track in middle school. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have done well and got a division one scholarship to run at Georgia State University, of course, there in Atlanta. So um, when I got to college, I originally thought I wanted to be a psychologist because I love human behavior. and um, I even, you know, that's what I initially earned my bachelor of science in psychology, but I always found myself gravitating back towards food, nutrition, performance. 
So I decided to earn another bachelor's in nutrition, and then I even got my master's in nutrition immediately after. So I've been, yeah, I've been a dietitian for almost seven years now, and um, I'm more and more confident that I chose a career path that was right for me. And I feel like what a great undergrad to have in psychology because there's so much psychology behind the way we eat. Oh, totally. It's extremely behavior driven. You know, there's there's a saying that I like to use is that information does not lead to implementation. You know, you got to love the alliteration there. Um, So you could tell someone, you know, these are all the great, great foods to eat for you, but really putting that into practice into their daily lives. It's a lot about behavior change. For sure. And I did not realize that you were a gymnast before you were a runner. Yes. And I really, if you kind of like look at me, I contain, I still have that physique. Um, so it was crazy kind of having a second career. Like I had a full length gymnastics career before I even became a track athlete. What made you get out of gymnastics? Did you have an injury or anything or your heart wasn't there yeah, anymore? The, yeah, the, my heart wasn't there anymore. You know, I, I saw the writing on the wall of like, okay, there are limited amount of gymnastics scholarships. Um, and it's not something that you can do with your friends when you get older. You know, now you can go for a run, do running groups. There's not a, there's some gymnastics groups for adults, but it's super limited. And, um, you know, I did see my, a lot of my teammates have pretty devastating injuries, you know, broken backs and double fractures in their arms. And I was getting older and getting wiser thinking, if my heart's not in this, I don't know if I want to put my body through this. Yeah. And then with track, did you do more short distance or long distance? When I transitioned immediately out of gymnastics, I started um, in sprints. And, but my passion, even though I was built like a sprinter and I was fast was really for that distance running. I loved the community, the coaches, we had a very prestigious cross country team. And so that's when I really fell in love with distance running. I mean, I love, I love hitting the trails, you know, you can just kind of get lost in the nature. And so that was really my passion. That's what I transitioned to. And that is even cooler to me because I, I didn't realize you did more of the distance running because you do, for those of you that have never seen Kelsey, she maintains a lot of lean muscle mass. Like you're very strong. And I know when a lot of people run um, distance that they can start to kind of waste away some of the muscle just from distance running. So I think, you know, the, the knowledge you have in fueling your body right um, probably yeah. helps a lot with maintaining the lean muscle mass. Yes. And, you know, to let you know, Kristen, I think we might've talked about this a little bit before, but I didn't always have the greatest relationship with food because of that transition. You know, I, I tried to really fit that ideal or at least what I, what was being conveyed to me and what I thought was the ideal female distance runner, which was long and lean, you know, and here I am um, short and strong. And so I realized that I was playing somebody else's game. You know, I was trying to make myself into an athlete that I wasn't. And through my nutrition studies, that's where I actually started to learn here's what I'm doing to my body. And here's the, actually a better way to fuel myself and to get the most out of my physique and my performance. And that's really when I started to actually optimize my body composition, my performance got better. So that's why I'm really passionate about helping, you know, coach these everyday athletes through this because I didn't always have that great relationship with food. I love that. And I feel like you probably then, cause you didn't start getting into nutrition until after your undergrad. So did you train and do track at the collegiate level without the way you're fueling your body now? Was that something that you implemented later? It is. So I, I was actually able to do a dual, ma- um, dual undergrad whenever I was a collegiate athlete. So I had a red shirt year, so I did two degrees in five years, but I did them 
consecutively, not concurrently. So I earned my Bachelor of Psychology first and then went into my master's. So in that fifth year, that's whenever we, we got into more of our upper level, you know, human performance nutrition classes. And that's when I, I started eating more. I started balancing my intake. Um, I listened to my body. I mean, there were days whenever I used to wake up hungry in the middle of the night all the time. And I didn't realize that that was a sign that I was really under fueling. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so it really wasn't until that last semester of my final senior year where I said, you know what, I'm not going to worry so much about the nutrition. I'm just going to eat the way that I know is balanced and let things fall where they may. And lo and behold, guess what? <laughs> Best season ever. Gosh, I know. And I, I was a dancer growing up and it was very similar where I'm not uh, built to be super skinny. And mm-hmm. it was the same thing when I was doing ballet. I felt like I was the largest one doing ballet. And mm-hmm. I had Russian dance teachers that um, would tell me my feet were too wide or my body composition wasn't right. And these different sports can be really hard on developing females and mindset around food and nutrition. And I think we can forget that food is fuel. And that's why I really wanted to have you on this podcast to really talk about fueling the athlete and really talking about anybody that works out and moves their body as being an athlete, like we're all athletes. And so I wanted to start as we get into this conversation on just the basics, breaking down kind of the three macronutrients. Um, Can we start there? Really basic Absolutely. Yeah. I think macros are a buzzword right now. And so sometimes we can get a little bit confused. And so, yeah, I'll just break down what each of those really means. So there's three different macronutrients. We have carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Um, Carbohydrates are, you know, the sugars, the starches, and the fibers that are found in things like fruits, vegetables, grains, and even milk products. They really provide that fuel for our central nervous system and the energy for our working muscles. So super important for athletic performance, because we know that athletic performance is not just the physical, it's also the mental, you know, thinking about a soccer player having to make quick decisions or the baseball player. So carbohydrates are extremely important for optimizing our performance. Um, You know, they, you probably might have heard of terms like simple versus complex carbohydrates. So generally speaking, simple carbs are those that are digested and absorbed more quickly and easily than complex carbs. To give you an example of this, something like honey or cane sugar, that would be more of a simple carbohydrate, whereas a whole grain, such as brown rice or quinoa, that would be broken down more slowly. You know, the molecular makeup has a lot to do with this digestion, including the fiber content. The more high fiber the carbohydrate, uh, the more slowly it would be digested and probably provide a little bit more steady energy. And is there, when you're talking about the carbs, because I think that's already just very important to understand that one, carbs are not bad and it is a fuel. Is there a time that you recommend simple carbohydrates versus complex, or do you think that generally complex are healthier? I think as the mainstay of of an athlete's daily nutrition plan, complex carbs should make up the bulk step. But there are some times for some more simple carbohydrates. So if an athlete, for instance, um, if they're having a hard training session coming up and they need those additional carbohydrates on board for energy, but maybe their gut just doesn't tolerate a lot of high fiber foods beforehand, then that's whenever we might use things like a simple carbohydrate, um, you know, adding on a little bit extra honey on maybe a little bit of a lower fiber toast 
because they're able to digest it and access that fuel a little bit more readily. So I think before and sometimes even during exercise, that might be a time if, you know, if we're going hard for over an hour, we might need a little bit of extra carbohydrate in the form of, um, you know, a good quality sports drink or something like that to give a little bit of keep your blood sugar steady during that time. So is that kind of the, I'm sure intensity plays a role too, but is that one hour is kind of the cutoff for when to think that you may need to have some refuel with you to maintain that performance? Yes, you're right. Intensity definitely plays into that. So yeah, right. When you're getting closer to an hour to 75 minutes, that's when we start to think about, okay, should, do we need to go ahead and bring some extra carbohydrate to have it available during that activity? And are there signs that you can look for it? to know that you need to be fueling? Is it based on your energy through the workout or is it shakiness or is it just something that even if you're not feeling it, you recommend fueling just because of the demands on your body? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, you brought up two really good signs and symptoms of if we notice that performance is declining, then yes, that might be a good time. If we notice that there's some physiological symptoms of shakiness that could be indicative of a low blood sugar. And so that'd be a great time. You know, I always say when it comes to nutrition and especially for the everyday athlete, let's look at nutrition like with a very playful mindset. You know, some people might say, oh, I feel perfectly fine. I don't need it. I'm like, okay, cool. How about we try it a couple of times? If you don't like it, no worries. There's no harm. And then time after time, a couple of athletes have come back and say, I didn't know I could feel even better in that workout. And I'm like, well, yeah, you, you know, you're doing an hour of really heavy lifting. Um, we're depleting glycogen pretty quickly. So you probably do feel a little bit better whenever we've got some extra carbohydrate. And this was something that I wish that I really thought about more because I was somebody that whenever I would work out, I would never feel hungry or that I needed to fuel. I would never feel the physiological symptoms. Like I feel like I could keep going. I never felt shaky or weak. Um, and not that I really encourage a lot of people to do marathons because I know it's very hard on your body and hormones. But when I'd be training for marathons, I would not want to have any carbs. Like I'd be going for these super long runs and I would not want to be fueling my body at all during them except for water. And when I started realizing that I needed to, even though I wasn't hungry or my body wasn't telling me that I needed to, that I needed to still have something. And when I started doing that, like you said, you notice the difference. So my body wasn't telling me to do it. I did it because I was like, this doesn't make sense that I'm probably not needing to fuel my body. And I wouldn't even be hungry for an hour or two after I would go on a long run. Like it's like the exercise suppressed my appetite And so just what you're saying, being playful and trying things, because I realized when I got those carbohydrates, I was actually running faster and my recovery was better. I wasn't as sore after runs and things like that. So I don't, I'm glad that you can just be playful and try it because my body didn't give me the physiological signs that I needed that extra carb, um, when training. And that's a really great point because Outside of our regular training sessions, hunger can be a very valuable tool when when knowing, are we achieving good energy balance, aka, are we getting enough fuel? Um, But actually, you know, during and after exercise, our appetite is suppressed. And so that's whenever we, um, again, having that playfulness and saying, okay, we know that the research really supports us. Let's go ahead and give it a try. And I'm glad that you are open to it and you recognize some of the signs and symptoms that it was being helpful, like the decreased muscle soreness. Um, probably because you were sparing some of the protein from your muscles being used as carbohydrate during that activity. Yeah, it was, it was just 
a good reminder that sometimes you just need to do things even without feeling like it's right. And you could feel even better than you ever thought possible. Um, so tell me, so carbs is one that you broke down, which is great. And Mm -hmm. then protein fats, tell us about those. Okay. Yeah. So fats are, um, you know, these are found in high amounts in nuts, seeds, oils, avocados, animal-based protein. They're excellent. They, you know, dietary fats are essential for everyday function. They provide us with a lot of long lasting energy to fuel our bodies. And they even help us increase the absorption of our fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A and D and E and K. Um, And I think that sometimes we forget that they're also, you know, dietary fats are great for hormone production. You know, we were talking about female athletes earlier. Um, This is so necessary. I see a lot of female athletes um, prioritizing carbs and protein, which is great, but, you know, they're trying to optimize their body composition. So they say, okay, well, fat makes me fat. Um, and our hormones can get really out of whack if we go on these very low fat diets. So, um, you know, fats are incredibly essential as a energy substrate and just a hormone production standpoint as well. Um, you know, not all fats are created equal. Yeah, I tend to favor a little bit more of the plant-based fats, such as olive oil and avocado, but we know that saturated fat, you know, it's probably not the boogeyman that we once thought it was. So, I would recommend just getting a variety of, of fats in the diet is probably a much better scenario than demonizing um, any one or particular fat or, you know, putting another fat on, on a pedestal. I just wonder how everybody felt in like the eighties and the nineties when every single thing was fat free, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And everyone, you know, we thought that fat made us sicker. And then, so we removed all the fat, we added processed carbohydrates and we all became sicker and heavier than ever before. I know. And I just feel like we're, we're seeing more and more like Alzheimer's with the brain being the fattest organ. And I just can't imagine mental clarity and cognition. Cause I know for me, when I get more fats, I can think so much clearer and, um, I feel full quicker and all those things. Um, Oh, totally. And then protein being kind of the last macronutrient. Yes. Um, yeah. So dietary proteins are, they're essentially long string strings of amino acids, which are these amino acids are the major building materials of muscle and cells in our body. You know, I love protein. <laughs> I feel like such a meathead for saying that, but it's true. You know, you have the low carb camp, you have the low fat camp, but, but most people agree that protein is critical, especially for athletes and those wanting to optimize their body composition. You know, it could be protein can be animal based, such as, such as chicken and fish and eggs, or it could be plant-based, such as beans and legumes, nuts and seeds. Um, and I think a, a healthy variety of those things is probably ideal. Um, I will say that most people, you know, if we look at just maybe the total daily amount, people do an okay job of getting in protein. The within day ranges, I think that's where we could probably do a little bit of work. So for any listeners out there, you know, I see a lot of people going low protein in the morning for breakfast, maybe an okay amount at lunch, and then really heavy at dinner to kind of quote makeup. Um, But really muscle protein rebuilding is best whenever we have a little bit of a smaller amount of protein, maybe 20 to 40 grams at regular intervals about every four hours throughout the day. What is your thoughts on the recommended daily allowance of protein versus what a lot of people kind of preach? Because I know the recommended daily allowance they say is what 0.8 grams per kilogram, but a lot of people suggest more like one gram per pound. What 
what is your thoughts and why is there such a discrepancy? Yeah, the RDA is really meant to guide people. Okay, like here's the very basic minimal amount for physiological function. You know, if we're going to actually maintain skeletal muscle, um, smooth muscle, getting in that 0.8 grams per kilogram is kind of the absolute bottom threshold. But I see athletes and active individuals needing at least double that. So, um, you know, 1.6 grams per kilogram, um, or even, you know, like, like you said, one gram per pound of body weight is much more ideal. You know, it's going to provide better substrate for rebuilding muscle, and it will help with body composition because we know that protein is um, very thermogenic, meaning that it actually takes calories to digest, and it also increases satiety. So our hunger is a little bit better, better regulated. And what about like the, the vegetarian or the vegan athlete as far as finding complete proteins? Are there any um, kind of tips or tricks for them? Yeah, that's a really great question. And with the kind of advent, the resurgence of the plant-based diet, I think that there's a lot more products out there, a lot more information for plant-based athletes. So I would recommend getting a wide variety of plant sources all throughout the day. You know, for our vegan or vegetarian athletes, we definitely have to be a lot more mindful of the quality. So, um, you know, if we're looking at a vegetarian if we can include eggs and Greek yogurt, those are great because they are more complete sources of protein. You know, animal-based sources are. But if we're looking at a vegan athlete, there are some complete sources of plant-based protein, things like a, you know, good quality organic soy. Um, if we're pairing different, like let's say rice protein and pea protein together, that makes a really nice complete protein. So um, we can kind of pair certain things together to really help increase the, um, quality of the amino acids that, that athletes getting. Cause that's really, you know, a vegan athlete could potentially get the amount, the total amount of grams of protein, but we're really looking at that amino acid profile and making sure that they're getting a really complete profile. And really even with plant-based proteins, I've always, um, been told, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is hundred percent true, but plant-based proteins are more like 80% bioavailable. So you, even though you may be consuming 20 grams of a plant-based protein, you may not be absorbing hundred percent of that protein where animal-based proteins are much more bioavailable. Is, is that, is that what you were taught as well? Is that a true statement? Yeah, there's certain things like phytates and fiber that are found in plant-based proteins that can make those proteins that are currently in them a little bit less, you know, a little bit harder to digest. Um, so yes, in, in theory, it would be easier to digest animal-based protein, assuming that we've got enough hydrochloric acid and, and good digestive functioning on board. Yes. And that is such a really key takeaway with protein that I find a lot yeah. is we used to say, you know, you are um, what you eat, but we now say you are what you absorb because so many of us have low stomach acid or different barriers and um, our stomach acid plays such a role in digesting protein. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Totally. So all of them, very, very important carbs, protein, healthy fats. What about like balancing them throughout the day? Um, and then I want to get into a little bit of balancing them around specific workouts, but is there a way uh, that you recommend people in general balance their macros just throughout the day unrelated to, to exercising? Yeah, that's a really great question. 
And, you know, what I like about this question is that we're acknowledging that our energy intake, you know, balancing our quote macros, it will probably fluctuate depending on the day, the activity level, how much we slept, the types of foods that we ate. You know, I think when people assume that we're going to be balancing our macros, they go right towards a tracking app. And while those can be really great tools for creating food literacy and awareness, I think it's really gotten us away from thinking more critically about our intake. So, you know, we tend to think about calorie needs as being very static or even our macro needs as being static when they actually fluctuate quite a bit. So that's when I really like to use the plate method as one way of conveying quickly, okay, here's approximately how much of the different macros to have on your plate. And here's how we can adjust these portions based on your training day or even your training cycle. So I'll give you an example. Um, if someone were to build kind of a moderate training day plate, this would look like about a quarter of the plate from protein. Because again, we don't need to, protein is important, but we don't need it to be, it's more important to get it at regular intervals throughout the day, not have three quarters of our plate from a ribeye. So we've got a quarter of the plate from protein, um, about a quarter to a third of the plate from those starchier carbohydrates. And that can be a little bit individualized based on the person. Um, and then about, you know, a third to half of the plate from vegetables. And then we drizzle on a little bit of healthy fat as needed. So from this part, we've got protein, we've got carbs, we've got fat, we've got micronutrients, fiber. I mean, this is a really good looking plate that most people can use as part of their everyday nutrition plan. But if we were to look at, okay, let's say I'm training for a huge, you know, centennial bike ride and I've got a three or four hour training ride coming up. Well, in the night before, maybe the whole day before, and even day of, I'm probably gonna wanna increase my carbohydrates and my fat, because I know I'm gonna need that extra energy on board to be able to do you know, three or four hours of sustained physical activity. So that's whenever you can use those portions and just adjust them a little bit based on the particular training that you have for that day. Does it vary from person to person how quickly they need to kind of increase their carbs versus decrease their carbs? Like, for example, if somebody went low carb for two days, are they going to see the impact in their performance right away or does it vary? Like, are you looking at just like a 24 hour before a race or a workout? That's where your carbs are most important or is it more of a longer term picture? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's more of a longer term picture because we're also looking at, you know, if someone is going low carbohydrate, what other activity are they doing on those days? If they're low carbohydrate, but they've also reduced their activity level by a lot, well, that might not be such a bad scenario. Um, but if someone has gone low carbohydrate and they've had very muscle glycogen depleting exercise on those days, well, if you're trying to show up to a big race and you've only got, you know, 16 to 24 hours, you can probably refuel um, within about 24 hours, but those that window starts to get narrower and narrower. So I tend to like my athletes to have a little bit more of a steady carbohydrate intake, especially the younger that they are or the less experienced. The more advanced that we get up, um, the more support that those athletes, the elite athletes have, we can get a little bit more creative with how we periodize carbohydrates. But I would say, um, you know, really having a good moderate carbohydrate intake and then paying attention to a couple of days out, starting to be more mindful of it is a really great strategy that works for most everyday athletes. 
That makes sense. And what about uh, related to different style training? So if you are doing just a day of heavy lifting versus if you have a day where you're doing more like run-walk intervals, would you look at fueling your body differently, very specifically like around the workout, not the rest of the day, but anything different that you would do for a strength training day versus a cardio day? Um, Potentially. And I would say one big factor would be, um, you know, how close to the workout that person is consuming their meal. So let's say you're someone someone who doesn't tolerate a very large meal before a workout, whether it's strength training or a cardio-based workout. um, You know, we might want to have a little bit of a pre-workout snack of those digestible carbs that we mentioned earlier to kind of top off those energy stores. Um, For me and most athletes that I see, the heavy strength training session can actually be pretty muscle glycogen depleting. Um, very similarly to maybe, you know, a longer run or even, you know, higher intensity running intervals. So sometimes I treat those athletes fairly similarly. Um, you know, I think that we assume that cardio athletes need more carbohydrates and potentially they do at certain times, but that doesn't mean that strength training athletes don't need those um, because the, even the type of exercise, the work that they're doing can still be very muscle glycogen depleting. Right. And it depends, you know, some of these like explosive strength moves are, I mean, you can get your heart rate up higher doing some of those moves than you can even going for a steady state jog. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I will say that the recovery for those might look a little bit different as well. As far as like refueling after with like a carb versus a protein or a carb and a protein. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if someone is going for more of a steady state run, the, Nutrition afterwards, you know, it, it probably, you know, if you're going for a 45 minute steady state run, um, we probably haven't depleted muscle glycogen stores and we probably also haven't started to break down muscle fibers. So that pre-workout fuel, fueling is probably not as essential as someone who's engaged in a really heavy strength training program um, where within, you know, ideally within an hour or so, we'd like to get some additional protein and even carbohydrates on, on board. And that was going to bring me, cause you're, t- we're talking about the different workouts and the steady state cardio. Maybe you don't need to fuel as much if it's a 45 minute workout. Uh, what are your thoughts on fasting workouts? Like first thing in the morning before eating? Mm, yeah. So when we wake up in a, in a fasted state, our carbohydrate availability is pretty low. So if you're waking up to do a hard training session, such as heavy lifting or high intensity cardio, you know, lasting more than about 40 minutes, more than likely, you'll probably benefit from the addition of carbohydrates before that training session. And like I said, it could be something small and easily digested like a banana and nut butter. You know, you don't, I'm not expecting an athlete to get up at 6am and have a full breakfast, but just something on board, you know, it's going to provide a little bit of extra energy, keep blood sugar steady and probably allow someone to push a little bit harder than they would without that fuel. Um, Now, if you're going to do something like low intensity walking or yoga, I don't have a problem with someone doing this fasted because energy and carbohydrate needs are so much lower during those activities. And I know some of the um, kind of specialists in the space that I've seen, they talk about it more even from like a weight loss standpoint, working out on a fasting state, but it just doesn't, I always have my patients try adding in some fuel because again, like what we were talking about before, 
you may be able to work out so much harder having those carbohydrates than not having them. And so I don't think our goal needs to always be weight loss because it may be to become stronger and faster and have a quicker metabolism and all those other things that in the long run help us from a weight loss standpoint. Totally. And there is some research to support that if you work out fasted, our fat oxidation, AKA our fat breakdown is better. But I think people extrapolated from that literature that that necessarily, that that would directly relate to fat on your body. Mm. You know, they think about it and, and that's not necessarily true. Um, so yes, while that, while fasting in that state might increase fat burning potential, quote unquote, it's not necessarily body fat. It's just endogenous fat. Um, you know, only, only having a negative energy balance is going to really optimize that body composition. When you think about it too, if your blood sugar is low and your cortisol is high, and then you're pushing a workout and putting even more cortisol in your body, it sounds like it could be really counterintuitive as well. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, what are your thoughts? So we talked about carbs, protein, something small before you work out. Um, I think that's all great information. We didn't really get as much into the post. Do you think that carbs and protein are really important post-workout as well or um, more so before? Or were you saying that it was like the steady state run, you don't need it, but the strength training you do? Yeah. Um, so anything that's really high intensity, I would say anything that where you're really breaking down some muscle fiber, whether it's heavy strength training, if you're doing track intervals, even just kind of like for the everyday athlete doing some more hit style training, I would prefer that someone go ahead and get some of that carbohydrate and protein on board um, immediately afterwards, just because, you know, again, we're trying to help that recovery process, um, really optimize that recovery process. And can you give some more examples of like what a post-workout fuel would look like? Oh, Sure. Yeah. So I think something that's really easy for people to like, let's say you were working out after work and you knew that you weren't going to have dinner for maybe two or three more hours after you finished your workout. So something that would be easy to carry was of course, you know, just regular protein powder and maybe a banana, you know, things that don't require a lot of refrigeration. If you have the luxury of maybe being at home or packing something with you, something like Greek yogurt with berries on top is a really great protein and carbohydrate combination. Um, you know, some people, the oldie that athletes love is chocolate milk. Um, it really, you know, it's, it's a complete protein. It does have the addition of some simple carbohydrates in the form of sugar, but muscles are really receptive in those first couple of hours. And so, you know, during that time, if we're using a little bit of simple carbohydrates to replete those glycogen stores, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think, I think the chocolate milk is such a like under, um, talked about source of fuel. I know that that was something that we used to do a lot when I was playing like lacrosse, it was like a big thing. And now mm -hmm. so many of my patients are dairy free. Um, and we don't talk about chocolate milk as much. And it's such a delicious way to replenish your muscle stores after a workout, um, oldie, but a goodie. And yeah. The amino acids, I feel like that we talked about that just naturally getting amino acids from protein, complete proteins versus incomplete proteins and kind of balancing those out and our need for stomach acid for absorption of those. What are your thoughts on actually taking like an amino acid supplement? Do you think that it is important to do? Is it necessary? Do we get everything we need from food? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, 
assuming, yeah, assuming you're meeting things like brand, you know, BCAAs or EAAs, you know, these are very expensive products. And so for someone, anyone who's listening, who might be unfamiliar with this, BCAAs refer to those branched chain amino acids. Um, there are three of these, which are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And then of course our EAAs are essential amino acids. Um, there are 20 amino acids, but nine of them are essential, meaning that we have to consume them from our diet uh, and the rest of them our body can actually make. So we know that leucine is a branched chain amino acid that is the primary driver of muscle protein synthesis. So you might say, okay, this is where a lot of think, you know, BCAAs got really popular, um, but isolating leucine or even including just BCAAs alone is, it's kind of like you're putting gas in the car, like just a couple of tablespoons of gas in the car. Like it will turn the car on, but it's not going to really keep the engine revved up. So including a full spectrum, you know, essential amino acids, a more whole food based product. Um, things like whey protein or Greek yogurt, or um, even some of those newer plant-based proteins who have a really nice profile of maybe, you know, brown rice and pea protein. To me, using those are a much better option, a much better bang for your buck because they have all of the amino acids that are needed to really keep that muscle protein synthesis engine revved up. I love that analogy. I've never heard that. When it yeah. relates to amino acids, I think that's great. And if you yeah. were doing like either the protein powder, like the complete kind of amino acid profile, do you recommend before, after, or during workouts? Because I feel like there is also kind of a mixed thought there with amino acids. Yeah. So here's kind of a, a really, if we're looking at the full day, because I think we get very focused on yeah the before, during, and after workout nutrition, which is great because we actually do need to pay attention to that. But we know that muscle protein um, rebuilding is optimized at about every four hours. So having 20 to 40 grams of protein, and that range depends on, of course, um, your protein needs and your body weight, body size. You know, I'm a five foot three female. My protein needs are not going to be the same thing as an offensive lineman. They shouldn't be. (laughs) So if we're, you know, if we're having that dose of protein about every four hours, that tends to be kind of the maximal um, way to do it. Now, I will say is that if you think about training, you know, maybe you had lunch, you waited two hours, you had your training, um, and then afterwards, that's a really great time to have that recovery protein. There is some evidence that, especially for women, including some pre-workout protein, maybe 15 to 20 grams, actually helps um, muscle protein, helps prevent some of that muscle protein breakdown, especially in that luteal phase of the cycle where progesterone is high and muscle protein breakdown is a little bit, um, we're a little quicker to that. Yeah. And I think that is a really good point of kind of thinking about where you are in your cycle too, and that the way we eat may look different. The way we train may look different. Um, I had not read that study, but that makes sense that women may have a little bit higher needs pre- pre-workout with that protein. Um, what about beta alanine is, do you have any thoughts? I know that's in a lot of pre-workouts and I know a lot of, uh, patients that use beta alanine. I don't know if you've personally ever taken it, but it makes you tingle like all over your body. Um, have you read any studies with beta alanine or any thoughts on that? Yeah. And in the elite performance world, it's definitely a supplement that athletes will consider, you know, when they're talking with their sport dietitian. It, it does have some benefits. So, you know, it's 
that's that's a good sign. However, for most everyday athletes, the things that are really going to move the needle are going to be, again, having balanced intake throughout the day, sleep. You know, this is a nutrition talk, but I mean, gosh, sleep is is just as important, if not more, than our daily nutrition when it comes to recovery and rebuilding. Um, and of course, like stress management, uh, meaningful relationships. I'm like, put all your money and your time into those big things that are going to move the health needle. Uh, you know, having fancy pre-workouts and, and relying on supplements. Um, it, you know, it, it's just not to me going to be where the mo- best money and time is well spent. And I think it's, you know, that's such a good point that you can't really focus so hard on what you do one hour of the day and not really focus on what you do the other 23 hours of the day. And that's kind of like, you know, where they're saying sitting is the new smoking. It's like, okay, great. You're getting up early and you're getting a workout in, but you're sitting the rest of the day and you're stressed out and um, not (laughs) sleeping much, right? Like it's that workout doesn't uh, compensate for all of those other decisions that you're making during the day. So I think it is very important. And I was going to say too, I read a study and I, I don't have it. Uh, but I read a study maybe a few years ago that was saying that really when they looked at protein based on your workout, like pre or post protein, that what was most important is getting enough protein within a 24 hour period. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it just makes you think exactly what you're saying that like, yes, you could do great and get workouts in or get your, uh, post meal protein in, but getting enough protein with each meal and over a 24-hour period is going to be the best for maintaining muscle mass. Uh, and I even know some people that body composition, they get they do a body composition scan at Stout Wellness, and they have so much lean muscle mass, very low um, or healthy, not low, very healthy body fat percent. And they really don't work out that much. And they just eat a really good diet that keeps their body composition in a healthy state, which is really fascinating. Of course, we're encouraging workouts, but food, you know, it is really important that we're getting these macronutrients throughout the day. Totally. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about under eating and I won't spend too much time talking about it, but you know, if we're trying to have, uh, if we're trying to rebuild muscle and things like that, it's really hard to do that in a drastic calorie deficit. So some people go on these crash diets and they're trying to optimize their body composition, which I get, you know, people are just trying to do what they feel like is best for them. Um, but that definitely has negative impacts on recovery if we're just dipping way too down in the well. And a lot of that extreme, um, calorie deficit, especially for females can be really hard on adrenals and thyroid, which is going to make it harder. Uh, it's going to impact your metabolism so much. Oh yeah. Um, and I think it's really, it's hard sometimes for us to switch our mindset and be like, I need to be eating more and more when I'm having trouble losing weight. But I think that sometimes it takes a little bit of time to see the benefit from that, but why not live the rest of your life being able to eat more and more and get your metabolic state healthy, then try to figure out ways to eat less and less and keep slowing down your metabolism and figuring out ways to eat less and less the rest of your life. Um, because it is, it's a vicious cycle. Um, and so I'm glad you brought that up. So I want to hear just cause we're always interested dietitians. I feel like you have so much knowledge and, um, the way you work out the, the body composition you have, like, we're always so interested in like, what does a typical day look like for Kelsey, um, or a week, like however you want to break it down, but tell us a little bit about like, what does your actual training look like now? What do you actually eat on a regular basis? Um, kind of shed some light uh, for your for your lifestyle. Oh yeah, oh, that's a great question. I, I like these questions too. I like hearing about what I've, what other people do. Um, so man, this is changing a lot for me. You know, I when I moved from Atlanta to Denver, and you know, in Atlanta, I was working two jobs, um, and 
was getting up, you know, really early, getting my workout in, that sort of thing. And, and now that I'm here in Denver, I actually work from home. So I do have a little bit more flexibility. I am a person who does a little bit better on structure. So I really like having a, you know, pretty consistent sleep and wake time, getting up, having my cup of coffee, slow, slow, a slow start to the morning is great for me. Um, but then I do like to have my workout a little bit earlier on in the day. And I have my, you know, kind of normal work hours. And then um, my husband, and I have a little bit of wind down time in the evening, which is nice. So um, you would probably, you know, I'm five foot three and I'm not a very large person, but I eat a, a lot in comparison to my, my size and my body weight. Um, and I just really attribute that to trying to pay attention to my body and my metabolism. Um, and of course, keeping in mind my training load. Currently, my training load is it's a little bit lighter because I actually did some did the Dutch test, Kristen, and my adrenal output is pretty low right now. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, you know, having a lot of high intensity exercise on top of whether it's high or low cortisol output, not a great situation. So my schedule, my kind of weekly schedule is doing two heavy strength training sessions per week because of, I mean, just the metabolic and even the bone benefits of, of that is really great. But that's kind of about all I can tolerate right now. Um, I've started to incorporate some reformer Pilates classes because they're lower intensity. Um, they do still have some strength and benefits, but I don't feel as depleted or kind of broken down afterwards. And I've been tolerating that really well. Um, and then, like I said, I'm in Denver, Colorado, so we're outside a lot. Just going for walks and snowboarding. Um, hiking season is coming up. So that's kind of my, my normal daily week. Um, a lot of people, I used to have maybe about like a meal, three meals and a snack per day, but I really upped that snack to really a meal. So I have four pretty large meals throughout the day. I find that I do really well on high protein, a good amount of fat and moderate carbohydrates that, that makes me feel really, really good during the day. Do you change your carbohydrates depending on the meal that you're having or are your four meals pretty similar in, in macronutrients? Um, they're pretty similar in, in macronutrients. Um, one of my meals is generally always a smoothie because I can just fit so much good stuff in there. Um, and so that one probably is a little bit higher in carbohydrate because I do include some fruit in that. Um, but they're generally pretty well balanced during the day. Now, if I'm going snowboarding that day, I probably will actually have a little bit of additional carbohydrates. Anyone who's been skiing or snowboarding for a day, you, you realize just how much energy you're expending. And even at high altitude, your carbohydrate metabolism is a little bit different. And so relying on extra carbohydrates during that time is a good strategy. And do you, I know you work out in the morning. Do you wake up, uh, wake up, eat a little something and work out right away? Or do you have a slow morning and do like a mid morning workout? Um, I was traditionally doing more of a slow morning, having a full breakfast and then doing a mid morning workout. And that's when a post-workout about probably about three, three and a half hours after my breakfast is when I would do a really nice recovery shake, which had, you know, lots of, of course, a, a protein source, um, carbohydrates generally from fruit. And then I add a lot of different um, seeds and cool gut healing stuff, you know, like glutamine and um, collagen. So that's really my opportunity to get a lot of good nutrients in during the day. My husband always freaks out when I tell him I'm going to the store to get my smoothie ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> because every time I go, I swear I spend, 
I just love, I love smoothies and I love putting every single thing in there. So the amount of stuff that I have that I put in smoothies is crazy. He's like, Kristen, I swear your weekly smoothie stuff costs like $75. Um, cause I get the ground flaxseed and the chia seeds and the pumpkin seeds and the collagen and the berries and the spinach and the kale. And, um, you know, it's, it is, it's totally, yeah, it's, it's fun. But my husband, he's like, you should just have just like a simple yogurt, just have a simple yogurt. Um, but that's not nearly as fun. Um, what about non-negotiables? Is there any kind of non-negotiables that maybe you've learned, um, throughout your career or things that have like really made a big difference in your health is that you really do on a daily basis? Oh, yeah. You know, going back to those three, those things that are going to really move the health needle. Um, and these are things that I'm still learning. I've never been a great sleeper. I, I thought I was that unicorn, you know, in college that could survive as an athlete on five hours of sleep, um, did it through high school as well. And then as I've gotten older, I have realized that I cannot maintain that pace. And of course that's where my adrenals are in their current state. Um, so, so I'm having to, to relearn this. So sleeping is so important. Um, you know, I've been telling clients recently, like, no, you don't need to go on a diet. You need to go to bed. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So, so sleep and, um, and then just working on how I relate to stress, you know, uh, I don't love the term stress management. I think that makes me feel like we just kind of move stress around, you know, we really need to get to the root cause. And so, um, you know, me bringing on a mental health professional to my healthcare team has been extremely valuable. And in conjunction with that, I've been making a lot more time for myself in that morning to, to journal, to read, to meditate, even just practice gratitude, something that kind of grounds me um, and, and brings that mental health, health aspect to it. And you mentioned before kind of just getting five hours of sleep. Is there anything that you've done that's really made a difference in you being able to get more sleep? Oh, gosh. Okay. You would laugh. Um, I should have Mike like record my nighttime routine. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, at 8 PM, I get in bed by 10 PM every night at 8 PM, the blue light blocking glasses go on. And so, you know, that's really reducing that blue light exposure that hits your eye and that can inhibit melatonin production. We need melatonin to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep. So that's number one. Um, you know, we turn down the temperature in our place to about 68 degrees to so keep it nice and cool. I have my eye mask. Um, I also do mouth taping. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yes. mouth taping. <laughs> yeah. So put my mouth tape on, um, and and then you know lights out officially by by ten ten thirty. So it's definitely very regimented, and and I really think that the body likes to know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so having that routine has really you know I fall asleep almost instantaneously. So it's been very helpful. And do you set an alarm in the morning or do you wake up on your own? I currently set an alarm um, just because, you know, whenever you do have a significant other, sometimes you're, you know, you kind of have to, your schedules meet in the middle. Um, But I naturally will wake up probably around 6 a.m. So I set an alarm just in case, but I'm typically a a 10 to 6 or 1030 to 6 sleeper. And have you seen improvements doing the mouth taping? It's, I know all about it, but I've actually never done it myself. Um. I definitely feel like it has helped the frequency with which I wake up in the middle of the night. I, um, you know, and for those of you, if you can, if you wake up and you feel like your mouth is really dry, or maybe you've got drool on your pillow, it's probably a good sign that you're a mouth sleeper. 
Um, and so it really does help kind of that mental cue of just keeping your mouth a little bit closed and breathing in throughout your nose. I do think it has helped with the overall feeling a little bit more well rested when I wake up. I love, yeah. I think that your nighttime routine is great. And when you said that we like routines, it's so true. And if you go back, I know I've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast, but um, with Emery, my six-month-old, she sleeps better when we do the exact same thing every night at the exact same time. That routine yeah. signals to her brain it's time to get ready for bed. Uh, and adults, like we're very similar. Our, our hormones and everything, it really, it makes a difference if we're in front of bright TVs and phones and lights. And I'm glad that you reduced the temperature because that I think is really important for your sleep quality. Um, so very, very good. And then is your weekend and your weekdays, are your sleep similar depending on if it's a Saturday night versus a Wednesday night, or do you have a little bit more flexibility on the weekends with your bedtime? I, I try to keep it to about no more than an hour difference or so. So, you know, maybe we go to bed at 11, maybe 1130 if we're out with friends. Um, but I know that I, I cannot sleep in. There is no, I've never been able to sleep in. Um, it is the bane of my existence because Mike can sleep in, I think, until whenever he wants. Mike is my husband for um, everyone. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, you know, he doesn't necessarily feel the ramifications if we stay out later. And I'm like, no, honey, I need to go to, I need to go to sleep. I need to go home and go to sleep. So yeah, we try to keep it fairly similar. I'm very similar to you. I always am up. I, my whole life I have been, and same with my husband, Cam, he can, he can sleep in, he can fall asleep and take a 20 minute nap whenever you tell him to, he's just like such a good rester. Um, and I'm really not, um, same. We're, we're always doing the most, right? Gosh, I'm like, how can you rest right now? Like there's so much in the house to do. And he's like, well, I just need a 20 minute nap and then I'll be refueled. Uh, there's a TikTok that I think is hilarious. That's me when I try to take a nap. It just, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> any, so I last two questions and I really like to ask our uh, guests these questions, but is there any health myths that you want to debunk for our listeners? Hmm. You know, as I've gotten older, I've become a lot more open-minded to emerging nutrition trends. I think there's probably a time and a place for some of these trends. But the biggest myth that I want to debunk is that that you have to be engaging in all of these different health trends in order to be healthy. You know, as we've kind of mentioned several times, focusing on the basics, you know, the balanced feeling meals, appropriate exercise, sleep, meaningful relationships, these are going to be the things that really move that health needle, not things like alkaline water or celery juice. So that would be probably the biggest thing is, is, um, be open to those different health trends, but use your personal filter and just say, let things that, you know, will serve you well, um, let those into your life and then go ahead and block out those things that you feel like are just going to be adding more stress to your daily life. I love that. And really focusing on the foundation of all the kind of basic wellness pillars and use all these superfoods and health trends and all of that is just like sprinkles to a really strong foundation. I think that's a really, really good health myth. And you actually posted something that um, I actually used to say all the time that, you know, eat things that you can pronounce like simple foods like broccoli and chicken and eggs and, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. And I saw you post that um, we shouldn't say that because of certain foods like quinoa and, <laughs> and all of that. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, gosh, that is so true. So I loved when you <laughs> post that, like, no, that's not true that we shouldn't eat things we can't pronounce. There's a lot of healthy foods that we can't pronounce. Um, so right. I loved, I loved when you said that. Uh, and then my last question, 
question to kind of end today, this has been great, is what is one small thing that our listeners can start doing today to be the best version of themselves? And I know you've given lots of kind of tips and tricks and everything, but is there some final kind of parting advice? Oh, man. Um, One thing that I love to do is when I pull up the blinds in the morning, one, just from a physiological standpoint, having that sunlight hit your eyes so great for retraining that circadian rhythm, which is that 24 hour internal clock that we have. So that goes along really well with that sleep hygiene we mentioned earlier and resetting that rhythm. Um, but I like to actually just look out, you know, take a moment, let the sun hit your face and just having one or two things that you're grateful for that day. Um, gratitude and is, I think going to be one of the new newer quote medicines, you know, it's not, well, of course it won't take the replacement of prescription medicines, but it really is powerful for the mind and the mind is powerful for the body. So that's one thing, one practice that it's free, doesn't take a lot of time, and everybody can do it. And it's side effect free. I think that's so, yeah. it's so important. And I, I really love that you brought up gratitude. There's a lot of good research too on gratitude and generosity and the impact that it plays on our health and our blood pressure and heart health and all sorts of things. Um, so, and it just takes a moment. So these little things, they add up uh, because little by little, a little becomes a lot. So thank you mm. so much, Kelsey, for being on here. And um, if you guys want any one-on-one with Kelsey, you can absolutely find her on um, Stat Wellness's website and book an appointment with her because she's actually, she can meet with people virtually, which is awesome. Even though she's in Colorado, thank you to telehealth. Um, but tell us about your Instagram handle. Where can they find you? Cause you put out so much good information. Oh, awesome. Thank, thank you so much, Kristen, for having me on the little by little podcast. It's a really great thing. So, um, for any listeners who may want to follow along on my Instagram, my handle is Kelsey K E L S E Y underscore Smith underscore R D. So pretty simple. Um, love to hear from you about what kind of content you would like to see and what's meaningful for your life. And it's, you guys, you have to follow her because you put out so much good free content. It's like such little, um, snacks, like so much good dietitian snacks all day long. So you guys need to, to check her out. So thank you so much. And, um, if you guys have any questions, reach out to Kelsey or me and I can get in touch with her. Uh, but I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Kristen. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.